1110 wbt Pete Callender here. The phone numbers, as always, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. The email, Pete at the Pete Callender Show.com. And uh, on Twitter at Pete Callender. Remember, you can get the podcast uh, at WBT.com and the Pete Callender Show.com. So I want to start off today just uh, giving the latest on the tragic accident of uh, that was suffered yesterday in the Charlotte media market, but the families and our colleagues and the friends of the two victims and the helicopter for WBTV that went down uh, right next to I-77 runs right through the heart of Charlotte. It killed meteorologist Jason Myers and the pilot of that helicopter, Chip Tayag. The WBTV family, they are in the building with us right down the hall. The BTV family is grieving a terrible loss, the station said in a statement. And they appreciate the outpouring of support for staff and continued prayers for the family. Myers, the meteorologist, Jason Myers, is uh, from Union and Catawba counties. He married his childhood sweetheart. They have four young children. Tyag came to WBTV five years ago as uh, an independent contractor, as I understand it, ENG. And uh, he had been operating Sky 3. He's been a pilot for more than two decades. Investigators with the FAA and the NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, they are uh, leading the investigation, uh, which could take like a year. <clears throat> they, they usually put out a preliminary report sort of early on, but final reports take a very, very long time. What caused the crash is yet unknown. We uh, understand that they were taking various members of the staff up in the helicopter, sort of a training or orientation kind of a thing, get people you know used to being up in the helicopter. Uh, a witness to the crash told WCNC that from their vantage, it looked like the pilot, Chip, had tried to save lives on the ground. Uh, the man told WCNC-TV, quote, my impression is that he apparently knew he was in trouble, he circled, looking for a place to put it down. And on the second circle, I don't think he had any choice. It was going down, and he got it just off the highway and avoided the road. That could have injured a lot more people. It's a tragic thing, but in that sense, he did a marvelous job. And those were sentiments that were echoed by the uh, police chief, Johnny Jennings, at a press conference yesterday afternoon that we carried live at the time. Um. There is a piece I just, by coincidence, had published today at a website called Persuasion. And uh, it's written by a fellow named Michael Ignatieff. Ignatieff? Ignatieff? He is a rector emeritus of Central European University in Vienna. And he's got a book called On Consolation, Finding Solace in Dark Times. And uh, it's a very lengthy piece, but... He says, to understand consolation, it is necessary to begin with the moments when it's impossible. Console is from the Latin word consolar, to find solace together. Consolation is what we do or try to do when we share each other's suffering or seek to bear our own. What we're searching for is how to go on, how to keep going, how to recover the belief that life is worth living. Trying to console oftentimes takes us to the limits of language 
And so a lot of times words just trail off into silence. Consolation has also lost its institutional setting. Churches, synagogues, mosques where we once consoled each other in collective rituals of grief and mourning have been emptying out. If we seek help in times of misery, a lot of times we seek it alone from each other and from therapeutic professionals. They treat our suffering as an illness from which we need to recover. Yet, when suffering becomes understood as an illness with a cure, something gets lost. The old traditions of consolation were able to situate individual suffering within a wider frame and to offer a grieving person an account of where an individual life fit into a divine or cosmic plan. He mentions religious texts. Um, And a lot of people, for a lot of people, these are closed off to them because they don't share the faith that inspired them. But why shouldn't we be required to pass, or why should we be required to pass a test of belief before we can derive consolation from these texts? The promise of salvation, redemption, that might be closed to us, but not the consolation that comes from the understanding that religious texts can offer for our moments of despair. He then talks about the more influential tradition nowadays. It's found in philosophers in their work, Montaigne and Hume, who questioned whether we can ever discern any grand meaning for our suffering. They gave voice to a passion and belief that religious faith had missed the most crucial source of consolation. The meaning of life was not to be found in the promise of paradise, nor in the mastery of appetites, but in living to the full every day. To be consoled was to hold on to one's love of life as it is, right here and right now. He goes on to say there are a lot of words that we use besides consolation when we confront loss and pain. We are comforted without being consoled, just as we can be consoled without being comforted. Comfort is transitory. Consolation is enduring. Comfort is physical. Consolation is propositional. Consolation is an argument about why life is the way it is and why we must keep going. Consolation is the opposite of resignation. We can be resigned to death without being consoled. And we can accept the tragic in life without being resigned to it. We can derive consolation, in fact, from our struggle with fate and how that struggle inspires others. The essential element of consolation is hope. The belief that we can recover from loss or defeat and disappointment and that the time that remains to us, however short, offers us possibilities to start again. It is this hope that allows us, even in the face of tragedy, to remain unbowed. So in the end, consolation is more than just a way to feel better. Serious losses cause us to question the larger design of our existence, the fact that time flows inexorably in one direction, And while we can still hope for the future, we cannot unlive the past. To be consoled is to make peace with the order of the world without renouncing our hopes for justice. And most difficult of all, 
Loss and defeat force us to confront our own limitations. And this is where consolation can be hardest to achieve. In the face of our failures, we are tempted to take refuge in illusion. But there is no true consolation in illusion. We must try, as Vaclav Havel said, to live in truth. And this is why traditions of consolation forged over thousands of years in the European tradition remain capable of inspiring us today. What do we learn that we can use in these times of darkness? Something very simple and very truthful. Which is we are not alone and never have been. Our thoughts and prayers to our colleagues down the hall. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Pete Callender here. Um, so the other day, there was a funeral service held for Shanquella Robinson. Uh, she's the 25-year-old Charlotte native who went uh, on vacation down to Mexico and died. And I got a lot of questions about this case. Man, do I have a lot of questions. We came to ensure there was enough people putting pressure on the entire system to do what is necessary to get justice for this woman, said activist Tamika Mallory, who has been involved in many national cases, including helping the family of Breonna Taylor. The parents of Shanquella Robinson were initially told that she had gotten sick with alcohol poisoning while on a trip with friends in Cabo in late October. The next day, they learned she was dead. According to a death certificate, the cause of death was listed as a cracked spine. Now, that doesn't necessarily preclude alcohol poisoning, right? There could have been alcohol poisoning and then an injury that ended up killing her. But, and this would have been, I guess, last week, yes, last week, WBTV learned Mexican authorities are investigating her death now as a killing, and the FBI has confirmed that they are also investigating. There is a GoFundMe page set up for, uh, for her family on this. Over at the Charlotte Observer, this story is from two days ago, written by Callie Cox and Sarah Coelho. Coelho? Information from a police report says Shanquella Robinson was alive when medical help first arrived at the vacation home where she was staying with a group of people last month in Cabo, Mexico. The report differs from details previously reported from... 25-year-old Robinson's death certificate that she had died within 15 minutes of being injured. Instead, a police report shows a doctor from a local hospital was with her and others in the house for close to three hours before she was pronounced dead. The Charlotte Observer obtained excerpts from a police report earlier this week that had not yet been publicly released. The information was provided to the observer by Gerardo Zuniga, an investigative reporter who works in Los Cabos for Metropolitics. 
and details were first reported by that publication. Robinson is a Charlotte native who traveled to Cabo on October 28th, and she died a day later. All right, so the police information reported by and provided from Metro, Metro sorry, Metropol, Metropolimix? Sorry, there's... There, there, I expect a couple more vowels in these in this word. I, it's it's throwing me off. Or metro metropoli MX, maybe that's how it's pronounced. Metropoli, no, because it's not poly. It's met it's metro P L I. That's what's throwing me off. Met, anyway, it does not mention obvious signs of Robinson's physical injuries. The police information reported by and provided from this publication, uh, Metro, does not mention obvious signs of Robinson's physical injuries, which family members have said existed on her body prior to her burial. Grave injuries, serious injuries to her back and neck were determined to be the cause of death after an autopsy by officials in Mexico. The police report says she also suffered cardiac arrest. All right, so my first inclination, and I, uh, my gut's always been bigger than my brain, so I usually go with my gut on these types of stories. My first... Uh, my first gut reaction to this was that the Mexican authorities did not want to pursue this because the initial reporting was alcohol poisoning. And so they didn't want their resort area to get the bad PR of uh, alcohol poisoning, you know, parting too hard and, um, and guest dies. But after it becomes known with the release of the the death certificate, but also the release. And this is, by the way, kudos to the people who keep pushing for more information, the family members who are demanding justice to find out what happened. Um, You then find out, oh, there's a death certificate that says serious injuries to the neck and spine. Oh, and also the video that gets put out. The video. And since then, the FBI and Mexican authorities have launched investigations into how she died. The lack of conclusive evidence and conflicting explanations has led to her story going viral. And not just conflicting explanations from the authorities. Who who initially said it was alcohol poisoning? If the if the coroner, the death, uh, the death certificate says the spinal and neck injuries, then that seems at odds with the initial report, which was alcohol poisoning. Well, where did that come from? It seems to have come from her friends who were with her on the trip. Charlotte Observer has been unable to reach those who were with her on the trip. Robinson's family became suspicious of her friends' claims that she died of alcohol poisoning when a Mexican autopsy report showed that her cause of death was severe spinal cord injury and atlas luxation. Atlas luxation is a form of a neck injury. What else? The reporting person is listed as Winter Donovan of Greensboro. Donovan is one of six people identified by family, friends, and media sources as a person Robinson was traveling with, so one of the group of friends. Donovan could not be reached for comment, and her phone number, listed on the police report, has now been disconnected. The police report excerpt is in Spanish, according to the Observer uh, translation. Uh, doctor, uh, a doctor was... Um, was summoned and was told uh, that she had drunk a lot of alcohol. Medical call was for Robinson to be given an IV. The police record indicates that the doctor found a female 
um, with stable vital signs, but dehydrated, unable to communicate verbally, and appearing to be inebriated. The doctor reported she believed that Robinson needed to be transferred to a hospital, but her friends insisted she be treated at the villa. An attempt at an IV was unsuccessful. It's unclear what medicine was in the IV. The information from police say doctors, uh, the doctor was there for close to an hour when Robinson began having a seizure. The convulsions from the seizure lasted less than a minute. At that point, they began doing CPR, um, and uh, they called the police. They were unable to save her. Robinson's mother told news outlets that each friend from the trip had a different story and they initially uh, that they told about what had happened about her alcohol poisoning. Official autopsy results, though, uh, laid bare that lie. A video of a fight has gone viral. The footage shows a naked woman, barely verbal, being hit and punched in the face multiple times by another woman until she falls to the ground. A person not seen in the video, a dude, is saying, Quella, can't you at least fight back? Like, I don't understand this. I, 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 I don't understand this thing where people film each other getting or, or attacking and beating up other people. I don't get it. I don't understand it. People who watch videos like that, make videos, somebody's being assaulted right there and you don't stop it. I don't understand that mindset at all. But I suspect the disconnected phone, the initial story about alcohol poisoning, the reluctance to get a doctor there, the fight. Hey, why don't you fight back? I think it's pretty clear what actually happened. The question is, where does the investigation lead? Who are responsible for it? And what... uh what remedies may be available because you're in another country. They're trying to raise a whole bunch of money uh, for the family. They're now at over $350,000. They got actually a donation from the Brooklyn Nets player, Kyrie Irving, as well. So our, uh, our prayers for peace and justice for the Robinson family as well. Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110-1800-WBT. 1110, those are the phone numbers. Um, wow, okay. I'm, I don't know if I should read this. This is about the Robinson story. Well, I will say that there is... Uh, there is a belief there is a belief that Shanquella Robinson was beaten to death and robbed that they that they took the money from her and then returned her luggage to her parents home I've not seen that reported um what else here? I got, oh, I just got this email here. Uh, from news reports, the shooter in the Colorado Gay Nightclub has filed his... Yes, I read this story today in the New York Post as well. Yes, he's non-binary. Sorry, they are non-binary. They, them are non-binary. And they don't want to be called Mr. Coward Van Loser. Uh, they want to be called MX. Not Mr., but Mixer, I guess. I guess? MX? Mixer? Right? Mix? Mix, mix Van Loser? 
How do you even pronounce that? MX. So silly. Um, it doesn't sound like a white supremacist, proud boy, patriot front person to me. No, it, sh- it sure doesn't. This is why I always say, just wait for the facts to come out. Wait for details to come out. And what's amazing, I just saw actually, hang on a second. Let me jump over here onto Twitter because I'm kind of all into the, uh, we're into courts and cases and stuff here. So um, there's this guy. Have you heard of this idiot, um, Ben Collins from NBC? This guy is, he's a piece of work. He go, He's on Twitter as, his Twitter handle is something like one underscore or something. And uh, he immediately rushed in to set the narrative, right, to try to calcify the narrative that uh, it was white supremacist, it was a proud boy, oath keeper, trumper, conservative, whatever, that it was some righty race or a homophobic right winger who went in there to murder all of the people at the gay bar be- during a drag show. And let me see if I can pull this up here. Uh, right. he's He has been carrying the most water for, uh, for this left-wing trope that the comments against the, the drag queen story hours and the the quote groomer tag and all and the pushback on uh, uh, radical gender theory in classrooms like all and, and the bills right I went over all this stuff yesterday the various pieces of legislation saying hey you shouldn't be teaching sex to kids in kindergarten that kind of stuff um, and he's the one who who's really done the most amount of uh, of work over the last seventy two hours now pushing this connection. Or is they have you heard of this term now? Stochastic terrorism. Have you heard that term or seen it? S T O C H A S T I C. Stochastic terrorism. This is a completely new term that now uh, DOJ, uh, Homeland Security, media, Democrats. But I repeat myself that they are using in order to pretend there is a connection when no connection is obvious. That's the that's what stochastic terrorism is. If you're looking for a definition of it, oh, I mean, I know they have a definition of it. Their definition of that term is that, okay, some people said some stuff and then some guy acted, and so we're going to connect those two. They were obviously inspired, even though there's no indication or evidence to suggest that the person ever heard any of those things. But now they've come up with this fancy-sounding term, stochastic terrorism, and they're just throwing it on Everybody who is what I said yesterday, right? It's all in a campaign of shut upery. It is the it is a refusal to engage in the merits of the argument, and so they just attempt to shut you up. And so they've applied this term stochastic terrorism. And so now they just label you a stochastic terrorist for saying things they don't like. Shut up. And this guy, Ben Collins, has been sort of the, the tip of the spear, if you will. Uh, on this grotesque manipulation of language and bad faith debate. I mean, it really is disgusting. This guy is really disgusting. I'm not going to play any of the audio. It doesn't matter. But there's a fella, uh, goes by the name of A.G. Hamilton on uh, on Twitter. He's a, he, he writes various pieces. He's a writer on all sorts of quarters and different publications and stuff. Uh, but he really, like, I don't know what he does. Let me see here. Maybe I'll check his bio. Let's see if he's actually. Oh, so he has a Patreon account now uh, because he's written all over the place. But uh, anyway, 
he says it real this really highlights this whole story because they went from it, it, it immediately went from this guy's a right winger murdering gay people at a drag show at a at a gay club in Colorado Springs and then when they find out today that oh the guy was non-binary wants to be called they them oh and now they've got the details as we talked about yesterday they've got the details on the harassment that he was subjected to brutal harassment that literally prompted him to change his legal name in court and the harassment was targeting him because he was lgbt that at least that that's what the harassment was uh claiming and his father was like some mma fighter who then turned uh, into a, a porn star and his they got divorced his mom and dad got divorced and so uh, that this was sort of the the uh, part of all of the ridicule and mockery that he's being subjected to so what happens this guy ben collins at nbc news yesterday he's saying it's the right wing rhetoric that prompted this guy to go kill people because he's a right winger stochastic terrorism and all but now we see that he was targeted and bullied terribly by the poop posters, the 4chan guys, the Pepe the Frog memers, right? All of those trolls, the 4chan people, right? Like the, these types of people, they were trolling him. And so Ben Collins then immediately pivots to say, aha, it was the right wing trolling. That's the reason for him to murder all those people. See, it, it doesn't, the excuse doesn't matter as long as there's a connection to, quote, right-wing rhetoric, as if making fun of people is strictly in the purview of the right wing. I've seen some of the most homophobic and racist comments I have seen lobbed at people. The insults I have seen on social media come from leftists, by the way. Um, anyway, A.G. Hamilton says this really highlights that Collins' pivot really highlights a huge incentive Right, He has a huge incentive to elevate the most extreme elements, make them seem mainstream, and tie violence to them regardless of the evidence because it makes it seem like him spending all day reading weirdos on Reddit is a very important job. That's what this guy does. He, quote, monitors the interwebs, you know? He monitors trolling and memes and gifs and poop posting. That's what he does. And he has to justify what is probably a six-figure salary to do it. And then he gets on TV and he talks about all the right-wingers, the extremists that are doing this. And, of course, there's no lefties that do any of the stochastic terrorism. No, no, of course not. But it shows he has an incentive to elevate these most extreme elements, make them appear to be ubiquitous and mainstream, and then connect any violent acts to them. And his interest is keeping his paycheck. People need to understand the incentive uh, infrastructure in play here. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Regarding the... Uh, the attacker at the Colorado Springs nightclub now declaring, or his lawyer, sorry, their lawyer declaring in court filings that they are non-binary. They use the pronouns they, them. 
and they want to be referred to as MX dot. Like if it was like instead of saying Mr. Calendar, they want to be referred to as MX period Calendar. I don't know how you pronounce that. Is that mix? MX? Mixer? Mixes? What? How do you pronounce that? MX, it's not even a, that's not a thing. You, it's not, that's not part of the language. Or maybe it's like the G. It's like, so it's mj. Is that it? Is it mj? I think I, uh, I think I figured it out. I cracked the code. Mj. Loser Von Coward. I think that's the, or no. They changed the name. So Coward Von Loser, Van Loser. I forget now. I never name them. I give them, the, I give them my own names, uh, to best describe them, but um, Monica says that uh, the MX, it, it, the inability to pronounce it is the point. So when it's mispronounced, then they can say how mean you are and how you're doing violence on them for getting their pronouns wrong. <laughs> that might be it. All right, it's all a trap. It's a trap. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the whole point. Man, that's diabolical. Who thinks that far in advance on this stuff? I'm just going to say, or you, you. WSOC TV reporting hundreds of local legal cases are taking years to go to court. Mecklenburg County DA Spencer Merriweather says older cases become weaker cases. I cannot let that happen. Nine investigates uh, is their, you know, their, their investigative unit or whatever. Nine investigates. What the backlog means for victims desperate for justice and the accused waiting for their day in court. Some have waited more than three years for a trial. Three years. The DA says taking too long. uh, It is taking too long to close too many cases and it's a delay of justice for everyone. He said it also weighs heavily on his team of assistant DAs to sit across from somebody and tell them knowing that they've uh, been made more vulnerable by crime committed against them and tell them it's going to be years before somebody's held accountable for that, that's unjust to them. It's unjust to the community at large. Yeah, okay, so what, what's happening? What, what are we doing about this? Seriously, you know me. I'm all about solutions. What can I do to help? Do I, like, I will ask state lawmakers, hey, can we get more money for... Uh, uh, for a prosecution for courts. I don't know if it's still the case. I remember, oh gosh, probably 15, 20 years ago when this, uh, this came up in, uh, under the old DA at the time, Peter Gilchrist, and he blamed the state for not funding courts. And at the time, he said that they were a donor to the state coffers, that more money is brought in via the court system than the courts get back. So they end up spent, they send more money to the state than they require to operate. Although he argued that they did require more money to operate. They just weren't getting it. So is that the idea that we need more money for courts? And look, you know me, I'm not one to just say, throw more money at the problem. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to the judicial system, if you don't have the personnel to prosecute the cases and to get them through in a timely fashion, then usually that is in fact a money issue. Uh, Mecklenburg County Sheriff Gary McFadden. Uh, all right. Anyway, he says 
It's unjust also to those behind bars who are in jail for years before being tried for their crimes. Because Gary McFadden, we all know, the sheriff of Mecklenburg County, is the voice for the residents of the jail. Remember, he doesn't call them inmates. He calls them residents. I guess because they could leave at any time. And a lot of them do. Thank you to the magistrates. He says it's a strain on them just being incarcerated inside a facility. Now, look, this part is true. Imagine being falsely charged, falsely accused, charged, and now you're in jail and you can't get a trial because of the, you know, the level of dumbassery in effect in our judicial system locally. But the waiting for a court date, waiting to go to trial is very difficult. Channel 9 obtained records from the sheriff's office showing that uh, 50 suspects who have spent the longest time waiting in the county jail have spent between three and a half to more than six years waiting for their day in court. The DA said the courts were already facing years of backlog before the pandemic, which made the problem even worse. Staffing is a problem. Merriweather currently has nine openings for prosecutors and said the 84 that he does have on staff is not enough. His prosecutors are trying more cases at once, prioritizing violent crimes and offering plea deals when warranted, which is like in every other case. Merriweather said those deals are never offered just because of the backlog. He said the longer it takes to try a case, the more difficult it is to get a conviction. Why? Because cases get old, memories are lost. Evidence gets lost or degrades or something, right? People forget stuff. He says, I cannot let our, uh, our cases get to the point of having somebody escape all accountability because cases have gotten old and witnesses cannot be found. So what's the solution here? Is it simply more money? More jails? Thank <laughs> you.